So how are you all doing? Enjoying Christmas so far? It's, uh, boy, it's nice to be in a place like this where there's just a sense of peace, a sense of quiet, a sense of rest. Don't have to think about the string of lights that are hanging off your house that fell off last night or all the Christmas presents you have yet to buy. It's nice to be in a peaceful place. This morning, um, I'd like to invite you just to think about an ancient story with me, a story about um, some magicians, a story about travel, a story about uh, longing, continue our conversation about longing, what is it that we're longing for this season, and um, about, uh, about longing specifically today for direction, for guidance. To help me start out this morning, I invite two friends of mine, um, Austin and Raquela, to come on up here and share with us our scripture. If you'd like to follow along, it's Matthew, the book of Matthew, and the, the second chapter. After Jesus, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means of least among the ruler of but you. Of, of Judah, for for out of you will will come and rule a ruler who will be will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go and make the." A careful search for the child as soon as you find him as soon as you find him report to me so that I so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When when they saw the star they were overjoyed. Come on, on coming to the house they they saw this they ch- the child with his mother Mary and and they bowed down to worship him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they they returned to to their their country by another route. Thank you. That's just my sermon. Don't worry about it. 
Wow. Whoa. Gets kind of dark when you turn out all the lights in here. No, we're not having technical difficulties. Just wanted to give you an experience of being in the dark. I guess if you're listening to this online or maybe on a CD, um, you can feel free to go ahead and close your eyes. You can have the same experience we're having here today. Um, I guess if you're driving a car while listening to the CD, don't do that. Don't close your eyes. That wouldn't be good. Darkness. Uh, parents, do you feel your, uh, your children's little hands reaching out to, to touch you? Maybe are you reaching out to touch someone right about now? I wonder, I wonder when was the last time you consciously experienced darkness? When was the last time you consciously experienced darkness? I know, I know it happens. It happens every day, 5 o'clock, 5.30-ish, starts to get dark, stays dark for about 13 hours. But did, do you consciously experience it? I mean, we, we've come up with so many, so many uh, inventions, so many sources of light. You think about it, as soon as it gets dark, there's some light that comes on. I wonder if we can get somebody to turn these lights off right down here in the middle. Somebody pull that plug right over there. When we go to our homes, we, we go in and we uh, turn on our house lights. When we go outside, we, we switch on the spotlights. When we get into our cars, we turn on the headlights, which is probably a good thing if you're driving at night. When we go into our rooms, we turn on our reading lights. When we turn out those lights, we turn on our night lights. It seems that we try to do everything we can to avoid the darkness. When was the last time you consciously experienced the dark? I believe it's true that it is when we are in darkness that we are most keenly aware of light and our longing for it. When we are in the dark is when we are most keenly aware of the light and our longing for it. These magi, they fascinate me. They must have been fairly comfortable in the dark, I imagine, because they knew their stars. And seems like you've got to be in the dark in order to see stars. And they knew their stars. They knew the stars so well that, in fact, when, it, when the evening came, they saw a star this evening that they hadn't seen last evening. And I don't know about you, but that just amazes me. I go outside and I look up at the stars and I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of stars. I doubt that I've, I would be able to tell if there was a new one up there. I mean, I have a hard time finding the Big Dipper. Some people tell me that there's supposed to be only one. I can find at least five any given night, sometimes 20. I, it amazes me, this story. It's, it's, it's a brilliant story. A story of wise dudes on camels going across a desert, traveling 
finding, finding a, a, a child, lavishing gifts on this child. It's an amazing story. It's a story that you and I can't escape. Christmas time comes and, and we either see something, we, we see pictures, we hear songs, we three kings of Orient are, we, uh, we, uh, we, read, we read stories. We can't get away from this, this narrative, this ancient narrative, and, and I'm glad because there's a depth to it that um, uh, it's, it's great. I'd like to spend some time with you this morning just... Um, thinking that direction. I've learned that a great storyteller, a great storyteller leaves spaces in the story for the imagination to work. Have you noticed that? You hear a story and you know it's good when you, know you're, when you, when you sense your mind asking questions and answering the questions all at the same time and filling in details and, and your imagination starts to work and you know you're caught up in a good story. And I see Matthew doing that here. Matthew, the second chapter. He just simply says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. There's so much space in this story. I don't know where your imagination goes. I don't know what it is that... that automatically comes when you hear these words. But for me, it's probably a jumbled up mixture of Uncle Arthur's big blue Bible story books. You know what I'm talking about, those, those great pictures. That and Christmas story books that I've read and Hollywood movies that I've, I've watched about. The, what fills my mind? Three guys on camels, silhouetted, right? The desert scape. Um, wearing nice big turbans with crown-like things, Right? One looks like he has African features. One looks like he has uh, Oriental features. One looks like he has Middle Eastern features. Right? And they're traveling. They're, they're riding on camels. And, and, uh, and they, they arrive. They arrive at a stable. And they arrive and they're there with the shepherds. Right? And, and the angels. And, um, and baby Jesus is, is wrapped in swaddling cloth and, and in a manger. And, and uh, this is the story of the wise men. And they're all there together happy. Right? No. You read the text? Did you just read this text? Where do we get these ideas from? And I don't mean to crush any of your great stories that you have. I don't want to do that today. But I want to spend some time deconstructing this story. Because I think it's an important thing that you and I do when we hear stories like this. I don't know about you, but immediately my mind is filled with all these things, and I find myself just kind of tuning out. Just kind of glossing over three wise men. Woohoo! Got it. Let's go. And I find myself missing a depth of meaning, I think, that Matthew perhaps wanted for us. Where do we get this idea that there was three guys anyway? Does the text say three wise men, three magi? Sure doesn't. How do we know it was three? Why wasn't it two? Maybe five. How about 20? 20 wise guys on camels. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, the word that, that Matthew uses is, is magi. It's plural, so we know it's more than one. But we don't know it's three. Where do we get the idea of three from? Probably from the end of the, uh, end of the story where it says that there was three gifts, right? There was gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. Three gifts, three givers. 
Not necessarily. I know in my family, we all pitch in maybe for one gift sometimes. And you're talking about gold here. I mean, come on. That's, that's all. I'll give one coin, you give one coin, five to 20 guys, you can get a lot of gold. So we don't know. We don't know how many wise men there were. But it's interesting to think about it. What if there were 30? Would it make a difference in how we thought about the story? And how do we know that they were, um, uh, that they were, they, they went to Bethlehem and, and that they found Jesus in a stable? Where do we get this idea from? And the story? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, when they come to King Herod and he asked, how long have you been traveling? Tell me when you first saw the star. Afterwards, the part that we didn't read, but afterwards, he goes out and he sends the order to kill any baby two years and younger, trying to destroy this new king. So it makes sense that they had been traveling for a long time, and you think about it, going from west to east, riding on a camel that travels approximately three miles an hour. It's decent speed, but it'll take you a long while to cover a couple of miles. They were probably on the road for at least a year and a year and a half, maybe even two when they first saw the star until they arrived in Bethlehem. So would they have arrived, arrived, I don't know. (laughs) Would they have gotten to Bethlehem and and seen a stable? Probably not, absolutely not. They would have gone to the house. They would have seen Jesus a toddler, toddling around, maybe just starting to talk. Magi, I don't know. But he certainly wasn't a little baby. And where do we get the idea that they were kings? There's really nothing in the text that uh, tells us they were kings. Find out a little bit later on, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about magi and who the magi were. But they weren't necessarily kings. Maybe quite different. Why is it important for you and I to think about these things, go back to the text, I think because for me, anyway, for me, I need my imagination to become alive when I hear stories like this. And when my imagination starts to become alive, I start to find meaning for my life out of the text. I'd like to just um, have a conversation with you this morning, and that's one of the things that I, I have a hard time with sermons. I, I would much prefer a conversation because I know when you read the story and when you spend time thinking about the story, there are meanings that come out for you that don't perhaps for me. And I'd love to hear those. But it's kind of not the way it is. So I'm going to share with you some meaning that that has come for me. And um, I'd love to hear from you later on perhaps. Um, Many different directions we could go with this narrative, with this story. I'd like to spend some time... um, talking about meanings as travelers. I believe this story serves as a metaphor, a powerful metaphor, not only for you and I, not only for people that are far from, or are close to God, but also for people that are far from God or who don't have the understanding of God. These magi were Gentiles. That's one thing that Matthew says very clearly. They're Gentiles, they were not Jews. They didn't know the history of this God of the Jews. They were far from God and that they were drawn to God. So this story is for people who may not feel close to God. 
who may not feel like they are part of the in-God circle, whatever that is. But it's also for us who do know about God. It's for all who are on a spiritual journey. And I believe that encompasses all of us, no matter where you find yourself. So, first, um, the first observation that came to me when I was reading the story through is that these magi, these magi were not afraid. They actually embraced and searched after mystery and wonder and the unknown. You think about, um, you think about their, 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 uh, their livelihood, what they did. The term magi comes from a Latin deriv- derivative, magus, where we get our word uh, magician. Someone who spends time um, delving into spiritual realities, into spiritual wisdom. Probably not the magician that you and I may think of, David Copperfield or Chris Angel or somebody like that that does tricks. No. This is somebody who is seriously on a spiritual quest, who seriously studied nature, studied the stars. Uh, some people think that they were um, the ones that developed astrology. They patterned out the stars. They mapped out the stars because they believed in the stars. They understood the divine. And so they knew the stars. And they knew if there was a new star. And they knew if a star was different, that perhaps the divine was trying to tell them something. And they should follow the star. They knew these things because they absorbed their life in the mystery and the wonder of the universe. And I think for you and I, as journeyers, there's things that get in the way for us as terms of mystery and wonder. They, um, these, these magi, likely have, could have been Zoroastrian priests. Zoroastrian is, is a religion that um, it's, it's a monastic religion, believes in one God, and, um, and holds uh, that, that the mysteries of the universe can be scientifically studied in the context of faith. And that's something that in our modern world today we have a difficult time with. Many of you are scientists. You struggle with this. You wrestle with this. How do I hold what I find to be true in the scientific realm and hold that side by side with what I believe and my faith and the things that I hold dearest? And how does that work out? And it's oftentimes one overshadows the other and we lose our sense of mystery. I, I think it's, it's, I wonder, can we, can we have the experience where we don't have to have everything sorted out in our heads, everything figured out in our heads to be able to experience it in our hearts, in our souls? Uh, what if we can't explain everything? Now, don't get me wrong, I love science, I love what it does for us, I love the understanding and the knowledge and, and, and understanding how things work and I love going to the website, how stuff works. You like that website? Love that website. I never knew how a combustion engine works. I went, combustion engine. It told me how it works. No longer a mystery for me. I, you go on right now and I'll tell you about the 12 days of Christmas. It's always been a mystery. Why the 12 days of Christmas have anything to do with Christmas? Piping pipers, partridge in a pear tree, they'll tell you. They will tell you how stuff works. Their motto is, learn how everything works. 
That's their motto. Learn how everything works. And they're just about true. But I think it's this idea that we can give us enough time, give us the right equipment, we can figure out how everything works. And we shut out the realm of wonder. And we shut out the realm of mystery. But I think, I think there's also another thing that, that gets in the way for us, especially here as North Americans, is our busyness. We crowd out these times and these spaces where mystery and where wonder dwell. When was the last time you turned off your TV and you simply went outside, turned off all your lights, and gazed up into the stars? When was the last time you took your family camping, just sat around, and just soaked in the beauty of the wonder of the world? Where are the times and the places and the spaces in your life that you can reconnect with wonder and mystery, where you don't have to try to figure everything out? When was the last time you seriously questioned your career, your life, your direction, what you're doing? When was the last time you asked God, God, what is it that you want me to be doing? Is this it? Is what I'm doing what you want me to be doing? Or is there something else? Is there something more? And you took the time to listen. As journeyers longing for direction, we need to connect with mystery, with wonder. Something else that I thought about as I read through this story is the, the reality that if you set out on a journey to find, to find a direction for your life, to find purpose for your life, you will always encounter something that will cause you to change. Change somehow, change something, change some way, but change is inevitable. I came across a great story. I don't know if you've seen it. I was browsing through Barnes & Noble, came across a book with a title that captured my attention, Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. Have you heard that? Have uh, you seen that book, Leaving Microsoft to Change the World? It's a story of John Wood, who was a uh, uh, very successful Microsoft executive in the early 90s. Um, Microsoft was just exploding. Um, he was directing the, the Asian division, and it was just like um, growing leaps and bounds. Um, he was loaded, making great money, and uh, feeling good because he was part of a great corporation doing great things. And uh, he lived with this motto, he said, he lived with the motto that uh, vacations are for the weak. <laughs> yeah, I'm strong, I, I, I can work, I'm going to go, I've got energy, I've got passion, don't need vacations, don't need time off. It was about seven years, and he needed a vacation. <laughs> he was done. Um, he, he talked to a buddy of his, and his buddy says, hey, let's, let's do something, let's just, let's just leave three weeks up in the Hil Himalaya Mountains. Go for a trek, three weeks long. Um, John's like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And his buddy says, all right, you, you, I guarantee we get high enough in those mountains, we won't be able to hear our boss yelling at us. Guaranteed. So they left. They went on a three-week trek through the Himalayas. Middle of his trip, he encounters a guide who takes him on a detour, a detour a couple miles up the mountain into a little village 
where he sees a schoolroom, and, and this, this guide was, was the director of education for the, for the area. He says, let me show you my school, and, and little schoolroom, no books at all, just a couple. And in the, in the flyleaf cover of this book, it describes, it describes this, this overwhelming sense that John Woods got that he needed to change direction. He needed to be doing something different with his life. So he left. He left Microsoft. In the height of his career, he gave it up. And he took his energy, he took his passion, he took his, his, his drive, and he created this, um, this uh, nonprofit um, organization, um, Room to Read. So far to date, this organization has donated 1.2 million books. It's established more than 2,600 libraries and 200 schools. It sent 1,700 girls to school on scholarships, ultimately touching the lives of 800 children, 800,000 children. When you're serious about direction for your life and about God's plan for your life, you have to be ready to change in some way, some form. Something else that struck me as I was thinking about the story of the Magi is that they didn't go it alone. They traveled with companions. You ever thought, I mean, it, it just, just imagine for me, imagine with me for, for a second. I mean, Ketchering the star, the star, I don't know how many guys were together. Maybe they, they all saw it and they all started getting together and talking about it. And, and they, they all came to this conclusion that we've got to figure this out. This could be prophecy. This could be something big. This star isn't like any of the other stars because why would wise guys follow a star? I mean, the star keeps moving, right? They knew that it would keep moving. It was a regular star. There's got to be something different about the star. And they get together and they talk and, and uh, they're like, I'll go if you go. <laughs> All right, well, I'll go if you go. Dude, what are we going to tell our wives? I don't know. Uh, you got to have companions on the journey. Because it's glamorous. I mean, road trips are glamorous, aren't they? I spent a year, um, my sophomore year in college, I spent a year as a student missionary over in Thailand, and one of the great, greatest years of my life. Um, but I am sure glad one month into that that I didn't go by myself. I had some friends that, that um, went by themselves, and uh, uh, they were lonely, and they had a hard time. My brother actually was by himself up in a little village, and uh, we had to go and see him and just check up on him every once in a while because he needed it. But I, I, I was fortunate to travel with three other guys because um, a month into it, man, I needed I needed. I need conversation with somebody that I could converse with. I didn't know Thai. And uh, it was good to have a good conversation. I needed somebody that could come alongside me and say, hey, you know, we signed up for a year on this because I was thinking about going home. I missed my mom. I, I did. My dad, too. <laughs> I, it's good to have companions on the journey. Could you imagine a month into their trip? Are you sure, guys? That star still seems an awfully long ways away. Are you sure we want to keep doing this? Yeah, man, there's got to be something there. There's got to be something. 
two, three, four, five months into this. Guys, man, I'm tired of eating the same stuff. I'm tired of riding this camel. This camel's really annoying me. But we've got to keep going. We've got to keep going a year, maybe longer. It's important to travel with companions. They give wisdom. They give encouragement. They give feedback. Don't go your spiritual journey alone. Don't try to figure out your place in life alone. Go with companions. And finally, we've got many more thoughts, but we'll go finally. Finally, when they got to their destination, they, um, the star stopped, and it stopped over Jerusalem. And they went in, and, and I read a description of Jerusalem um, that uh, captivated me. I'll read it for you here. Uh, These pilgrims would have shared the road with ox, ox teams hauling huge slabs of limestone. Jerusalem, like today's Chicago, New York City, or London, was a huge ongoing building project. The sounds of construction would have, would have mixed with the bleats and bellows of sacrificial animals. Um, these animals would be for sale in street-side shops. The view to the left as you enter the city would have been taken up by a wall up to 150 feet high. A wall not of the temple, not of the temple itself, but of a gargantuan 35-acre platform which it perched atop of. To his right, going into the city, would have been Jerusalem's upper city, its gold coast, where the families of the priests who tended the sacrificial altars lived, according to Jewish law, but in Roman splendor. And can you imagine as they entered the city, guys, man, this is it. This is, this is beautiful. This has got to be where the king is. This has got to be the end of our journey. This has got to be where we will find divinity. This has got to be it. And can you imagine their dismay as they started to ask around, tell me where the king is. Oh, there's a king, Herod. He lives up in that palace over there. How old is he? Oh, he's old. He's not the right king. There's got to be another. Tell me, wh wh where's the king that's been born? Can you imagine their disappointment as they hear from, from people, there's, there's babies born all the time. There's no kings. Finally, they go to the religious group, the, the, the group that has it all figured out. They say, tell us, could you tell us where, where your king is supposed to be born? We know that there's a king here somewhere that's supposed to be born. Tell us where he is. And they, they search their, their uh, scrolls and, yeah, we know where the king is born. He's, the king, well, the scrolls say, Micah. Micah tells us, prophesied that, that, that there will be a king born in Bethlehem. Yeah, Bethlehem. Is that like uh, part of the city? No, no. Bethlehem's about six miles away, south. Nothing really there. I mean, you can go if you want, but probably won't find much. Oh, Bethlehem, all right, let's, let's do it. So they get out, and, and they're kind of concerned because and, and, they've, they've lost their star. But the text, the text says this. Check it out. Um, after they had heard the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Can you imagine losing your direction, following this for a year and a half? It's gone. 
you imagine the relief you would feel when you finally see it again? And yeah. And it led them to Bethlehem, six miles away. And I imagine as they got, they crested the hill and they looked and they saw Bethlehem, dirt houses, shepherds, people building stuff, carpentry. Nothing really there. Poverty. I don't know. Other side of the tracks. Are you sure? And they saw the star. And the star must have led them right to the house because the text says they found the child. And as they find the child... They lavish their gifts on him. They lavish all of the things that they brought on him. And it strikes me. It strikes me that if you're on a spiritual journey, the most likely place to find God perhaps isn't in beautiful, fancy places. But perhaps it's in places like Bethlehem, places of poverty, places with people who need a hand up, places with people who don't have And it strikes me that perhaps if you and I want direction for our lives, the place we're going to find divinity, the place we will find Jesus, is in Bethlehem. I don't know today if you've met Jesus before. I know some of you have, and that's probably why you're here. Some of you may not have, and you're just kind of coming just because it's kind of the thing to do on Christmas. But I want to invite you. I want to invite you. If you want to know who Jesus is, you'll find him in the places and in the faces of people in need. There's a hauntingly beautiful poem written by Michael Card. He says this, he is in the pain, he is in the need, he is in the poor we're told to feed. Though he was rich, for us he became poor. How could he give so much and what was it for? In his distressing disguise, he waits. Waits for us to surmise that we rob our brothers by all that we own. That's not the way he has shown. Every time a faithful servant serves, serves a brother that's in need, what happens at that moment is a miracle indeed. As they look to one another in an instant, it's clear that only Jesus is visible 
for they've both disappeared. He is in the hand that reaches out to give. He's in the touch that causes men to live. So speak with your life. Now, as well as your tongue, shelter the homeless, take care of the young. In his distressing disguise, he hopes that we'll realize that when we take care of the poorest of them, we've really done it to him. And I imagine, I imagine that our direction will be a lot clearer when we journey to Bethlehem. Do you remember that prophecy in Micah? The one that uh, told them that uh, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Listen to these last couple of verses connected right with that prophecy. This promise. He, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. May you go in the peace of that king.